Uh, well, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, and thank you very much for turning out in such numbers. Uh, it's a great treat to be at the LSE in the Shake, Rattle and Roll Theatre. Um, it's a very uh, splendid environment to be uh, talking today. Uh, I am the most ignorant person on the panel. I have been to Gaza and to Palestine uh, a good number of times, but I don't have the expertise um, that is amidst us today. But we're here at a very poignant moment uh, in the affairs of the Middle East, not, lead, not only because of the appalling um, situation in Syria and in other areas, but, um, but because of the impasse that continues and what appears to be the pretty well certain death of a two-state solution. So um, welcome to this panel discussion on Palestine. And what we're going to do is I'm going to sit down for one thing because I'm too tall to stand up. Um, uh, what we're going to do is each of the panelists is going to talk very briefly about where they're kind of coming from on this subject. Um, and I'm going to also get them each to introduce themselves. I always think it's much better for people to tell us what they'd like you to know about them than for me to tell you what I think they'd like you to know, uh, or perhaps what they would not like you to know. Uh, but before I start, I want to tell you why we're here. We're here because of uh, two uh, very strange uh, doctors from the NHS, consultants, who uh, participate in a wonderful effort at the um, Augusta um, Victoria Hospital in Arab East Jerusalem. They go regularly each year with a group of other doctors and consultants to train Palestinian consultants in new techniques in all sorts of areas of um, uh, medical development. And um, one of them uh, is Magdalena uh, Kincaid, and the other is her husband, Robin. Um, Magdalena is completely bonkers. She's one of these people who just will not let go of an issue, and uh, she determined that uh, we should have a discussion about Palestine. There was nothing like enough talking about Palestine, let alone action. But if there's no talk, there's no action. And there's no talk in part because there is, within the media... Um, a very serious Palestine fatigue. We suffered from Northern Ireland fatigue for a very long time, during which if you put Northern Ireland at the front end of a news bulletin, you could actually see viewers turning off. Uh, and the same is true, tragically, of Palestine. Uh, the commitment in the media is very, very low. And consequently, the pressure on politicians to do anything about uh, Israel-Palestine is virtually nil. Um, and that's the terrible base from which we have to proceed. Uh, so, with no more ado, I'm going to ask uh, the panellists uh, to begin, and I'm going to start with Rosemary Hollis. If you'd just introduce yourself and then say <coughs> what you'd like to say, Rosemary. Thanks very much indeed. Yes, let's keep up the talking and the activism. My current position at City University is director of a scholarship program called the Olive Tree Program, which gives scholarships to Palestinian and Israeli undergraduates to study at City and to have some conversation across the conflict divide while they're at it. And also I teach um, as professor of Middle East policy studies. I was asked to address the international dimension of the situation today so I want to make a few points and then make two suggestions. The first point is that the legality of the situation is perfectly clear. 
The UN has endorsed a two-state solution. Palestine has been recognized as a non-member observer state of the UN. The EU, the EU member states, and the US have said that the occupation of East Jerusalem and the annexation of East Jerusalem is illegal and not recognized. The occupation, writ large, is illegal. The settlements are illegal. And the blockade of Gaza constitutes collective punishment, according to the EU, and must be lifted. But also, Hamas is still required by the Quartet to embrace the three principles if it is to participate in any conversation about the future of Palestine and Israel. On the situation in terms of relations with Israel, the U.S. has only recently renewed its commitment to Israeli security. Obama notes that the Palestinians do have rights, which apparently impressed the Israeli left but was ignored by the Israeli government. The European Union has advanced trade and cooperation with Israel under the European Neighborhood Policy and Partnership Agreement. That advancement in trade relations continues as we speak, whilst at the same time the EU condemns specific Israeli moves to expand settlements. The official position by this government here and others is that what must happen is a resumption of direct talks between, and here they say the Palestinian Authority, they don't get fussy about detail and say the PLO, and the Israeli government. Fourth point, the European Union is also the main funder of Israeli human rights organizations, the main champions on the Israeli side of Palestinian rights. The EU is also the main funder of the Palestinian Authority. Successive pronouncements on the Palestinian economy today make the point including the most recent statements from the IMF and World Bank, that the Palestinian economy in the West Bank cannot progress any further without a solution and that the onus lies on Israel to lift the blockages to further development on the Palestinian side. This is an extraordinary picture. In terms of the legality, the official positions, the actual activities, the facts on the ground the trade relations, the funding commitments, and I didn't mention the training of Palestinian security forces. Now, what on earth could be the explanations for these disconnects between pronouncements, official positions, and actualities? It's almost a cliche, but I do believe that On the the U.S. side, the explanations are domestic in terms of the political costs, which it would appear Obama has calculated too great to expend any more effort on the Palestine question at the top level. The explanation on the EU side is, I believe, especially since the financial crash, that they prize internal consensus in the UN, in the EU, on anything that they can get anything resembling consensus on, 
and they put consensus building within the EU above bold action without. I think they've also calculated that if the EU were to make any initiatives by itself, and the, the US has recently said, Ahlan wasahlan, they have basically deduced that they can't get anywhere without the US taking a lead. The US is not inclined to take one. And, of course, we're all riveted by the specter of Syria unraveling and the possibility for some kind of regional-level war with Iran. It may have receded these last few weeks, but it hasn't gone away completely. Now, my two suggestions. Galvanized by the revelations this morning in the newspapers, I still read them, that the release of documents buried by the British government and which thereby were not covered or not released under the 30-year rule, the latest releases demonstrate that the British, in the last couple of years of mandate Palestine, predicted that there would be war between the Zionist movement and the Arabs, including the Arab states, and that the Arabs would lose. And they lamented the fact that Palestinians had started to flee their homes in 1947. A kind of, this is how it's going to be, so what can we do? I suggest now's the time in view of the revival of the two-state solution, which was the plan on the table in 1947-48, that the international players concede defeat and tell Israel that they are not prepared to reverse on the international legality, but nor are they going to buy into any longer the narrative that if only the Palestinians would change, the situation could be solved. Palestinian capitulation will not bring peace and would not actually be in conformity with international legality. So it is time to open a new, more honest conversation, first and foremost with Israel, about a five to ten year time horizon to discuss scenarios for honoring the rights and the needs of all the people under Israeli occupation and control. And these could include unilateral separation. On what terms? Two, federation with Jordan modalities. Three, binationalism. How will it work? just to name three. Thank you very much indeed, Rosemary. Thank you. Um, before I introduce, um, well, before he introduces himself, um, I, I, there is one thing I have to say uh, on behalf of Ilan Papi, because he's too modest. His book, Out of the Frame, The Struggle for Academic Freedom in Israel, will be on sale after this event. Ilan. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, 
name is Ilan Prape. I teach in the University of Exeter, and uh, I'm also the director of the European Center for Palestine Studies there. Uh, John talked about fatigue, uh, which is understandable, and uh, on the Palestine question. And I think the main reason why we all feel tired and exhausted when we speak about Palestine is because we tend to compare Palestine and contextualize Palestine in the contemporary scene, uh, which journalists tend to do. Namely, you ask yourself, how do I compare what occurs in Palestine to what occurs in Syria? What is more horrific? What needs my attention now? A mundane daily oppression of a Palestinian prisoner who dies in the Israeli jail, now uh, on a long hunger strike, the imprisonment of three Palestinian children or the killing of one of them compared to the horrific events that occur on a daily basis in Syria. And in fact, this is the main issue that we have to discuss. Palestine should not be contextualized contemporarily. It should be contextualized historically if we want to understand the extent of the evil that is uh, raging in that land. And it's very difficult for the media to accumulate knowledge and assess knowledge and present knowledge that has to be evaluated within historical perspective. When we talk about dispossession in Palestine, we cannot talk about what happened yesterday. We have to talk about what happened yesterday in the context of what happened in the last 100 years and understand that the same impulse, the same ideology, the same policies and strategy that brought to the dispossession of the Palestinians in 1948 are still intact today and are gaining the same international immunity they had when they first started in the late 19th century. And this is a point that is not mentioned again and again. The fatigue here is not because people have heard this before. The fatigue here is because you ask your viewers or your listeners or your readers to do something that usually consumer of news don't do, and that to have a wider perspective of the case study that they are asked to address. So I think it is very important, and that's my first point, not to forget the history of the dispossession. Not because history is always important. Sometimes it's good to leave behind historical events in order to move forward. But when the same historical event is happening in our lifetime, and the event I'm talking about is a settler colonialist movement trying to dispossess the native people of Palestine, this hasn't changed since 1882. We are just in a different phase in this project. When this is the project that we are covering as journalists or analyzing as scholars or want to engage with as activists, this is something that we have to make sure that we found the right ways of conveying this truth and reality to whoever we think it is important to talk to. The second reason there is a fatigue is that we have been using the wrong dictionary for many, many years, and we are propagating the wrong solution for the question for many years. And it is tiring if you use the wrong language 
and then you get exhausted yourself because there is a gap between what you describe and the reality on the ground, and we've all sinned in that. And when you offer a solution that has nothing with the reality on the ground, there is a limit for how many times can you repeat again and again the same solution when you know that actually there's no chance in the world that it would ever be implemented. The language we are using, and understandably, is the language of parity. There are two national movements. There are two sides to the story. There are two sides to the coin. No, they are not. There is a victimizer and a victim. There is a dispossessor and a dispossessed. And there is a colonizer and a colonized. This is not a parity. This is an imparity. This is an imbalance. That our role from the outside is to redress this imbalance, not to support it, not to perpetuate it. And I think that this idea that we are continuing to talk about realities on the ground as if we have already accepted them, such as the dispossession of the Palestinians with no right of the refugees to return, such as the idea that the Palestinian state, if it ever came into being, would be just a fraction of what used to be Palestine, such as the idea that if Palestine becomes a state, it would be a state that we won't find any definition for it in any political science books, because it will have no sovereignty, no taxation, no government. So God knows why you would call it a state. You can call it a municipality at best, but not more than that. And the last point I will make is that we are using the wrong paradigm, or we are captive, captivated by a false paradigm. Now, the power of that paradigm is that the international community is behind it. The power of that paradigm is that even Palestinian leadership gave its blessing for that paradigm. But that doesn't mean that this is the correct paradigm. In Palestine today, there is one state. There is one state. It controls the whole of Palestine, including the Gaza Strip. It imposes different regimes on the Palestinians who live there and a different regime on the Palestinians who used to live there. The only appropriate language for change on the ground is not the language of a solution. It, it's not even the language of a peace process. It's a language of regime change. Because the current regime that rules the life of the Palestinians, who are half of the population between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean, that regime is not democratic, is racist, uses apartheid, colonization, and dispossession as its main means of control because it subscribes to ideology that says that only a Jewish demographic majority can produce a Jewish democracy. And unfortunately for the Palestinians, from the very beginning, the Zionist movement was possessed, or, or rather obsessed, with the idea that the Jewish state has to be democratic and Jewish, which meant that you are obsessed daily and annually with the idea of how many Palestinians are in the space that you regard a Jewish state. Only one other ideological movement in history was so possessed with the idea of how many people live in a certain country. I won't mention its name. <laughs> but it is very sad that the victim of that ideology are using even the same system of finding out whether a Jew of a third generation can be defined as a Jew in the state of Israel. This pathetic, pathological obsession with demography is at the base of the conflict and the reality in Israel and Palestine. And the two-state solution was born as means of finding a way of reconciling the wish to have Jewish majority with 
the Jewish demo democracy. It's the wrong impulse that produced the wrong solution. The impulse that has, with this I would end, the impulse that has to push us all in Israel and Palestine is the following. The Zionist settlers colonialist movement has now a third generation of settlers. I'm sure most of the Palestinians accept that the third generation doesn't have to go home and doesn't even have a home to go to. That their home is the homeland of the native people of Palestine. But we have to reframe the relationship between the settlers in the third generation and the native population and those who were expelled from Palestine in 1948. And there are clear, universal, ethical, and moral guidelines of how to reframe relationship between natives and settlers in the 21st century without criminations, without recriminations, without additional injustices, and on the basis of a sound political logic. It's not in the sky. It's a reasonable uh, paradigm for reframing the relationship and finding a solution that maybe will wake us all up, even the media that has been exhausted for understandable reasons. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, John. And um, Ilan was making me laugh, and he's calling for regime change. I just thought that was it. Remind. Oh, I teach. Uh, I teach at Oxford. Uh, for many years before I went and studied for a doctorate and uh, became an academic, I was a uh, representative in the Palestinian national movement. Um, but it, it just, I just suddenly remembered at the start of the second intifada, Ilan and I was on a panel in which, uh, just the start of the second intifada, and it was one of those uh, intelligence squared, I think it just That's started. Right. And there was two sides. And there was us on one side, and there was uh, Saeb Erekat and George Weisenfeld on the other. And they vote when you come. You vote when you come in about what you think about the proposition, and then you vote when you go out. And it was something like the peace process had failed, and everybody had voted uh, with us. So our side was already in the in the clear. And somehow, Ilan and I managed to get the whole thing on the other <laughs> side. <laughs> Because we put everything on the table. The right of return, one state, right? And we had, uh, uh, who was our official representative on the other side, saying, we don't want history, we'll sign anything. Do you remember that? <laughs> and the, 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 the good news about that, it was very funny, we kind of lost the vote. But the good news about that, 2013, all of the things that we were talking about at that time, that unless you understand the history, you can't move forward. And things like the right of return, why is it so essential? And why is it actually the key to peace rather than this kind of um, annihilation, under, which under kind of what Ilan has been describing, the demographic uh, view or paradigm, sees the Palestinians as an existential threat to the end and the only way to, do, to, to solve it is to get rid of to get rid of us all. So um, that's changed. I think that's changed. I think that's understood. And, and something's changed a lot on the Palestinian side. I mean, I think there's something in the framing that Rosie did that was very kind of good because it put the way things are still seen here. 
in the official circles. But I would say even in the official circles, privately people talk about it in a different way, uh, in, in an understanding that the two-state solution is long gone, long gone, long gone. But I think that uh, in setting that out, in setting out, well, here was this framework for solving the solution, the only problem with that framework for solving that solution is that the people themselves, the victim of the conflict, would have to disappear for the two-state solution to work. Because in that framing, Rosie, who knows everything about the Palestinian refugee issue, given that she ran a long program on the refugees, and understands them in detail and the conditions of it, is the Palestinian people who were the victim of this long century of expulsion. The majority of us were expelled and living outside historic Palestine. So when we look at a solution, I would say, well, we can look at it around those paradigms of conflict resolution. We can look at it embedded in some kind of historical sense so that the moment that you're looking at makes sense, which it often doesn't make sense. In, 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 in looking at, if you're just looking at the West Bank or you're looking at Gaza. Or you can look at it in the sense of the people themselves and where they are and who they are and what that story is. And that would be a solution based on the most common, common principles that we all hold dear. Uh, Magdalena wrote to me, I've just met her, a really uh, beautiful email about something that referred to those principles, which is why I wanted to come and just talk in a very simple way about them. Who are the Palestinian people? Where do we live? What, do, um, what are the basic requirements for a future for our people and uh, in that region? And I would say the land, you know, a lot of people, you can, you can have a long list, and sometimes one feels a requirement as a Palestinian to go through the list of atrocities, endless, 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 uh, about our prisoners, about you know, the fragmentation, about the expropriation, about the murder of our people on a daily basis. But on the other side, there's this miraculous story, which is a story of our people, and it's a story of struggle and resistance. And that's a very hopeful story, because we've remained a people through this cataclysmic set of events, which is perpetuated. And so we have uh, the majority of us outside of the historic um, historical, uh, historic boundaries of Palestine, Israel, occupied West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza. Most of us are in Jordan. We have half a million of us now in Saudi Arabia. Yeah? Many living in very, very dangerous and precarious and uh, uh, terrible circumstances without papers, without the right to work, without the right to get buried, without the right to use the hospitals. Yeah? So the Palestinian predicament, if you see it as that of a whole people, then you come back to the basic, basic principles that one would hope uh, to find that ties us all, that ties us outside or those who aren't Palestinian and who do things like Robin and Magdalena do, which is come and work with us and serve for a common cause or a common humanity. So it's like, well, is there two sides? No, there's only one side. You know, whenever anybody comes and says, well, I'm on the other side, I'm like, well, what side is that? You know, don't we all believe in the same principles? Don't we all want to treat each other in some kind of common basis of principle? So that, for me, means the land belongs to the people who come from that land. Yeah? I mean, Iman talked about the generations that are born there and who now come from that land. Yeah? And then there's the Palestinians who come from that land who have been forcibly expelled from that land. So you can't really talk about 
any solution that's not based on what the people want. Yeah, I, people always ask, do you believe in one state or two states? And I, I honestly say, I mean, first that there is one state and it's not ours, yeah? But, but more importantly, I want what our people want. Yeah, I would like our people to be able to determine their future. So whatever solution, if that's no, no state or a region or going back to the old city-states that we used to have and the way that we used to live and take the train from here to there, which Antoine remembers, right, those days, it's fine if that's what our people are determining. And that's actually based on the principle that we all hold dear, that all peoples have a right to determine their fate and to participate in that determination and that you're not free until you can make the laws that, you, that govern yourself. So if you say that's it, then the first thing has to be the rectification of the injustice. And the rectification of the injustice is very simply put in Resolution 194. Yeah? And that is the right of return of all those Palestinians who were expelled over those years, over that year, to their homes, to their farms, to their properties, to their cities, yeah? and compensation in addition. And it has now become not only an individual right that's enshrined in all, but by the way, all refugee law is based on the right of return. It's the basic fundamental principle that if you're thrown off your land in war, you can return to it. You're not, you shouldn't be expelled from it. You have the right, and that's the basis of... Of, of, of So once you have that, that's the basic injustice. Until that return, until that's happened, then the people who live in that land will determine what kind of shape, that, 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 what kind of institutions, what kind of structures. So we're, we're, most people are very, very um, used to framing it into the external structures of power without thinking of what are the principles that we hold dear here in this country and everywhere else? Well, that of popular sovereignty. One of its manifestations is elections and democracy, but popular sovereignty is larger than elections and democracy. It means that the people are the source of the laws, that they fashion the laws themselves and that they determine their future. Yeah? So that gives us an understanding of what we, how, how people that are not Palestinian, not from the region, would see support, what that would mean to support the Palestinian struggle. Our struggle is to come together as one people again since that cataclysmic dispossession. Yeah. Our struggle is to come together again, not as parties, not as different sectors, not as, but as a people. Yeah. And that would mean that um, what the Palestinian struggle is about, and I think if you change the lens to see yeah. What you can notice much more importantly now, especially in the West Bank, there was a kind of project, the project of the last 20 years, the Oslo project, which was creating a state in the West Bank and Gaza, which said the people are here and the others just have to disappear and then we can make this project for the people here. And they're the people and the others, we don't know what they are really, but we can give them relief or tents or humanitarian assistance. What's happened after the Second Intifada is quite interesting, is that both the people inside increasingly start to feel like we feel like refugees everywhere. I go to Palestine a lot and you can see it. The, 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 the fragility of our hold on ourselves as a people, on our land, the absolute relentlessness of 
the ethnic cleansing and the dispossession and the colonialism that's going on has made even those who have come from a village from hundreds and hundreds of years start to feel very fragile and feel we feel very unified again as a people. In all of these conditions, colonialism is, uh, in its ambition, is to control and fragment and, and, and disperse. So people cannot come together and, f- and, and struggle together as one. And so the Palestinian, when you see it in Gaza or this, I'm not saying that the siege of Gaza isn't important and it should be um, noted and remembered and raised and the issues there, or the increasing dispossession of the Palestinians of Jerusalem or of the villages by the wall. I mean, the list is endless. But I don't, and, and there's the Palestinians in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Syria. I mean, Yarmouk refugee camp had until a few months ago 140,000 Palestinians in it. Today there's about 20,000, and the entire system of support of everything has collapsed. Darah camp is just destroyed. This is the Palestinian predicament. So the most important thing is to see us as a people as a whole, and then you start seeing what is the injustice. The injustice is the expulsion. The justice is the return of people to the land. And then they determine, everyone who comes from that, what kind of future we'd like to have together. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> Peter. Um, well, my name is Peter Kosminski, and I'm a charlatan. <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> or, at the very least, the cuckoo in the nest. I'm not a, a sort of academic superbrain historical expert like the uh, other members of the panel. I'm uh, a filmmaker, writer, and director. I turn my attention to subjects, become sort of moderately knowledgeable about them for a short period of time and move on. And about 12 years ago, I received a letter uh, after I'd made a film about the British peacekeeping effort in Bosnia from an old British soldier who'd served during the, um, the peacekeeping mandate in what was then called Palestine. Um, and he was talking about the film we'd made about Bosnia, and he said as a sort of afterthought, He'd served in Palestine, but of course we'd never make a film about that because nobody's interested. Well, that seemed like a kind of um, challenge, really. So I started to research it, and I, you know, I'm a moderately well-educated person. I was shocked by what I'd discovered. You know, I, th- I think the attitude of most... I mean, people in this room are probably much more expert than that, but the majority of British people... They look at the situation in Israel-Palestine and they think it's tragic, it's intractable, and it's nothing to do with me. And what my research suggested to me was that it was rather a lot to do with us. (laughs) Because when General Allenby marched, uh, marched into... Palestine and took it over from the Ottomans in, what was it, 1917, and uh, the, the League of Nations gave Britain, you know, did, did what we, we love doing, carving up other people's countries, uh, gave Britain control of Palestine, Transjordan, which we ruled until 1948. We, we were the colonial power there. 
And didn't we do a great job? I mean, it must be admitted that it was one of a number of really great jobs we were doing around the world <laughs> in decolonization and around that time. And, and in fairness to the British government, I can just about manage to get these words out of my clenched lips. Uh, you know, we'd just come through the First World War. The country was completely bankrupt. I mean, think about this. Britain received an $8 billion loan from the United States. $8 billion in 1945. Imagine what that's worth today. The country was completely bankrupt, and we had the small matter of decolonizing India on our mind. So, you know, Palestine, it was embarrassing. We just won the Second World War, and we were being shat on by a group, a small ragtag group of insurgents. It was humiliating. We had, we had 100,000 men, or it mostly was men, under arms, and we were confined behind Danart wire, let's get out. Let's get out with the minimum cost, above all, the minimum difficulty, and let the consequences go hang. And unfortunately, the world has been dealing with the destabilizing consequences for the last 50 or 60 years, you know, and, and, and we see it all around us today. Um, so, spool forward, I, I went and made a film. It was, it was eight hours long. Brevity is not my strong suit. <laughs> uh, called The Promise. It was about a guy who served during the peacekeeping effort in between 1945 and 48. And it was about his granddaughter who went back there many years later in the present time frame to try and find out what had happened to him. It was a bizarre and complicated film to make because we shot every frame in, in Israel. And I went in with the, you know, the naivety of the idiot treading where, the fool treading where angels will fear to tread. Uh, for example, I asked, I had this idea that, you know, Palestinians should play Palestinians in the film and, and Jews should play Jews. I've made films in other parts of the world. It didn't seem to be that radical an idea. Um, you know, and there were some quite tough scenes. You, you know, you had Jewish settlers in Hebron screaming at, uh, at the at Palestinians who, who were trying to live their lives there, and some of the scenes were, were very aggressive and very difficult. Of course, what my stupid, naive brain hadn't quite realized was that the you know, the, the Jewish people who were playing the soldiers were, were all often reservists in the Israeli Defense Forces. And, and the, the, the Palestinians, you know, had had a lifetime of experience of that kind of repressive behavior. So trying to get them to dramatize, the, you know, was a complicated matter. And um, it was interesting, and just one particularly sort of unpleasant scene that we dramatized, the, the two actors... The, the Jewish actress and the Palestinian actress wanted to be photographed together arm in arm at the end. And I thought, well, that's very nice. You know, we'll get the set photographer along to take the picture. I didn't re and then they both separately came to me afterwards and said, Do you, and that these were people who'd been acting for, for 20 years or more, that they had never, in that 20-year career, both on stage or on screen, 
acted with a member of the opposite community before, ever. And that, within my sort of, the, the small little world that I inhabit, hit me like a brick. Such is the level of alienation that, you know, and the, and the Jewish actress said to me, when we do this kind of thing, we have Jews playing Palestinians. So spool forward to the film being transmitted, and it was shown pretty much everywhere in the world. Nothing prepared me for the level of vitriol that was going to drop on me from the Zionist lobby. Nothing. In all the sort of 30 years of making tough programs, they were the nursery slopes compared with the concerted, personal, vicious stuff that came my way. And, and, I, and I'm going to stop because, you know, I think it's much more interesting to hear what you guys have to say. But I was left with one really striking puzzlement. And again, to you, a rather educated audience, this will seem blindingly obvious. If I choose to criticize my country, I'm a Brit, if I choose to criticize my country, um, and I often do, nobody says, well, very few people say I'm not patriotic. Certainly nobody calls me a racist. They accept that it's a legitimate thing in a free society to criticize the political and diplomatic behavior, the domestic and foreign policies of a sovereign state. It doesn't mean that you're not a loyal member of that state. It just means that you, have, you disagree with its political behavior. But if you're Jewish, as I am, and you criticize the domestic and or foreign policy of the sovereign state of Israel, you are immediately called an anti-Semite very clever, isn't it? It's very clever. You, you can't, you can't criticize the behavior of a sovereign state, a member of the United Nations, without being called a racist. And of course, because of the Holocaust, it, you, you know, it, it's an immensely sensitive accusation to level at someone that you're an anti-Semite. And, and to me, that's the most troubling thing, in, as I say, as a, as a cuckoo in this academic nest, about the whole discourse, that the Western world is ultimately hobbled in its ability to criticize, the, irrespective of, of more geopolitical considerations, we are still, after all these years, restricted in our ability to criticize the, the, you know, the straightforward behavior of an elected government in the state of Israel for fear that we will be accused of being anti-Semites. And that's what I've spent two years plus wrestling with. Thank you. Could you want to just run a little bit? It's frustrating to have it on the screen and not see it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. There's still some in there, I very nice, Abdul. Very nice. Morning. Just have a bit of a laugh with the child on a search. 
You don't mind, do you, Abdul? No, sir. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, mate. I don't think you'll mind at all. Especially when you present him with his bits and pieces all polished up nicely so he can see his face in them. But you won't want to do that until you've done send up to the camp at 0500 tomorrow. Will you, Private? Nice, Arch. Well, go on, then. Help him collect some on. To know where to proceed from from, from there, um, but I wondered whether any of you wanted to say anything to each other. <laughs> well, I mean, we've had very four very interesting um, offerings. I, I, I'm actually I recognise, obviously, if you're a Jew and you describe the the experience of being called an anti-Semite. What I, I am actually encouraged, actually, that that although uh, the Middle East is less talked about. I think there is more candor about criticizing both Palestine and Israel. In fact, people are more open about criticizing the leadership in both uh, political entities. Um, I, I mean, it's a very interesting thing. In the early days, uh, you used to get hounded uh, on the media, certainly, uh, if you took a particular line with a particular uh, spokesperson or whatever. But that doesn't happen anymore. There's not actually a full-time operation going. Um, you know, you, you, your inbox, if you had one, because, of course, we haven't had one all the time, I've been a, an anchor, but your inbox or your uh, in-tray uh, would, would be besieged with complaint. Uh, but it's, it's not there anymore. And uh, so I think, the, oddly enough, the fatigue in Belfast actually did give way in the end to peace. Very strangely, because nobody was talking about it, somebody started talking to each other. And maybe in this hopeless moment, people will start talking to each other. The, the problem seems to me to get people talking to each other who are not actually driving the machine, but who have ideas and live in these communities and feel they're not necessarily represented by the people who govern them. I've lived in the States for five years, uh, some time back, but I have always felt that actually what's called the Jewish lobby is a very, very diverse collection of people. Uh, it's actually ridiculous to say that they are of one voice. There is, of course, a Zionist lobby, but there is also, you know, there are people who are Jewish Americans who, who would run a mile from some of the things which are represented for them. And we need to, to engage with that and be, be able to talk to each other. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, you know, wanging on from a me media point of view. I mean, there's two ways of looking at that. You could say, well, you know, 
the, the, the Israel lobby or the lobby for the state of Israel and all it is, uh, you know, backing off and seeing the light. And the other thing would be is a lobby triumphant. A lobby tri- If you look at the facts on the ground, I don't know how you both feel about that, and I think you've probably experienced a rough end of it in the last couple of years, Peter, you were saying, is that uh, it... There's something that's reached that I, ca- I, I, I thought about three years ago. We had reached absolute rock bottom. We had to start going up because we couldn't go down anymore as far as the predicament that the Palestinians found themselves in. Yeah? With all of the manifestations of the fragmentation and the colonialism, which is a co-opted and exhausted leadership. You know, we have an aging national liberation movement with an exhausted and co-opted Leadership, who's running the occupation, with uh, the the fra- complete, 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 another kind of fragmentation of the land and the people from it. And I thought that's it; we've got enough. So one could see, and it's and 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 there's something about the Arab Spring, which was very interesting, in a sense that here you have uh, something that you know in each country. Egypt or Tunis, if you know the people that were involved in those moments, that there was 10 or 12 years hard slog to create those moments, that there was a very, very detailed and concerted effort by associations working with each other year after year to gain, a, make a common front for public space for everyone. But what was so, so, that, yeah. what was so fascinating to be in Terrier Square in mm-hmm. the first few weeks Mm-hmm. was the word Palestine never appeared, mm-hmm. America never appeared. Mm-hmm. The, the, the movement was about Egypt. Um, I think it's like a, there's a couple of levels in it. I think, yes, of course, there was all Egyptian flags everywhere you could see. But if you knew, um, if you think of the actual associations and the coalition that created the uh, advance to Tahrir, which was one year after year. You know, liberty is won in a very daily, costly way. And that coalition of people that came together so that it was actually a broad popular front also saw Palestine. And I think that the events over Palestine uh, were so important about the Israeli embassy and the Palestinian flags and the way that the Egyptians themselves talk about Palestine. And if you look at that movement of that 10 years that built that coalition in Egypt, it started with the Second Intifada and the crackdown on the protesters in Egypt on the, in the sec- and, and the kind of lessons that that gave to how to organize in Egypt and how to organize under an authoritarian regime. So I would say that, yes, it's about freedom and it's about liberty and it's about claiming the national institutions by the Egyptians for Egypt. But if you ask Egyptians, what is their uniting thread as Arabs, and they will say Palestine. They will say Palestine. Rosemary. Uh, um, There's so many themes that have come out and that are on the table. I mean, we've been talking about people, and Karma talked very eloquently about the Palestinian people. Um, But Ilan also talked about an obsession of a homeland for one people who are Jewish, and not for others. And I, I, I think there's some very deep water here. 
in terms of being proud of a people and protective and loyal to a people and then not ending up discriminating against another people. And, uh, you know, I could challenge my fellow panelists, but Ilan and Karma in particular, to say, well, okay, uh, do you end up saying that the Israelis have got to leave? And there is anything, is there anything that could be called an innocent Israeli? Do you have to be too young to have served? Do you have to be not Jewish? Do you have to leave regardless for justice to be done? Um, essentially, that's what Europe did to the Jews. So we don't want a repeat of that history. Well, let's address that. Ilan. Well, I just said, I just said that the one reason for hope is that the Palestinians understand that the third generation of settlers, which is the state of Israel, is a fait accompli, whether they like it or not. So that's definitely not part of the plan. The, the, the problem is less the Palestinian perception of the Israeli Jews. That always reminds me when uh, Palestinians were criticized for not mentioning Israel and the West Bank in the textbooks. They have a tank in the book in their, in their courtyard. Do you think they have to mention it in the book? They know Israel exists. Believe me, there isn't one Palestinian who doesn't know that Israel exists. There are 95% of the Israelis who don't know that the Palestinians exist. That's the problem. In a similar way, to say that the Palestinians have to uh, uh, understand that the Jews don't have to leave, Ahmadinejad is uh, an Iranian. He's not a Palestinian. Palestinians understand that the Israeli Jews are, as I said, a settler community that became an ethnic community that is part of the story. The whole idea of the one-state solution is the idea that you are willing to incorporate not only those who settled in your country, but even those who abused you for a century. That's the basis for reconciliation. That's the agency the Palestinians have already offered, by the way. They don't even have to do it. What they need is for the settlers to come and say to the native population, we acknowledge what we did, we're accountable for what we did, we are sorry for what we did, and we want to reconcile on a basis of a different footing, of a different equation between settlers and natives. I want, if I may, if I have the floor for just another minute, to uh, uh, associate with something that Peter said, this idea that uh, you cannot even criticize a legitimate elected kind of government of Israel, and I agree with you. And I think, John, you're, I don't know what your inbox is doing, but uh, check it again. Uh, I, I think at a time, in a time... I'm, I'm not you, Elan. No. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, that is true. That's absolutely true. At the time that the BBC does not even is willing to, to publicize uh, a call for appeal to help sick and wounded and children in Gaza, uh, to claim that there's a kind of a normality in the way the media deals with Palestine is a bit uh, off the record. Um, but I, I really want to associate with something that, that Peter said, if I may. I came from Prague. I, I was in Prague talking, I don't know if you know, but the Czech Republic is uh, now a preferred uh, destiny by the, uh, destination of Israelis. There's no criticism on Israel at all. Uh, this is the, this, the post that most Israeli diplomats want nowadays. 
Uh, thank to you, by the way, London is one that they hate. So we should be happy about that. Um, now, the Czech, as, as you know, in Prague, 80,000 Jews of Prague were killed in the Second World War. And uh, I gave a talk there, and people talked about it. And I said, I f of course, I fully understand that crime. What I don't understand, I said, why you as Czech people, regardless of the Zionist movement, did not demand that the Jews who are still alive would stay in Prague. This is the only way you could compensate, not only for what the Nazis did, but for the way that you collaborated with the Nazis in destroying the Jewish, thriving Jewish intellectual community in Prague. I understand why it's very easy for you to support the continuation of the expulsion of the Jews from Europe. That's very easy. But what about supporting the right of the Jews after 45, 48 to be part of Europe? And this unwritten, unseen connection between the way Europe has never come to terms with what it did to the Jewish community and the support today very important people in Europe give Zionism is a major elephant, if you want, there's a huge elephant in the room that we should talk about. This explains the condemnation of your film. This explains the way that karma for all his, her life is fighting in Oxford for uh, a legitimate presentation of views that in any other part, in any other case of the world would be welcomed and, and condoned and praised. This is why we are such a big disadvantage, not because Israel is powerful. It's because Europe doesn't know yet what to do with the Holocaust. Thank you. Well, uh, if I get practical, Rosemary, you opened up with some very interesting statements about positions of the EU, for example. And one of the positions of the EU is, is in fact, the search for most favoured trading status for Israel. And it's a rather extraordinary thing to have the rather praiseworthy positions on legality and illegality, and yet in fact not be using the strongest oppression that they have to achieve legality by looking to their uh, trading status, because that at the moment is on track to go through as a full-blown um, state of affairs yes indeed I mean, I'm in the business of studying how foreign policies are made and policy decisions are made and the, the, the policies of the Europeans and Britain very much uh, in that mix uh, and fascinates me when it comes to Israel and Palestine absolutely fascinates me and I agree with what Ilan has just said 100% the Europeans, including the British, have not come to terms with what it meant to, first of all, uh, discriminate against and persecute, then expel and finally try to exterminate a whole people. Uh, and I find a lot of Arabs talk about... Uh, but Judaism is a religion. Why do they have to have a state in the name of Judaism? And I keep coming back for the answer to the Europeans who decided that somehow Judaism was something above and beyond a religion. 
And uh, talking about what is not known, um, and certainly not known by the British, as Peter said, about uh, their role in the origins of this this whole problem, um, I, th- I think very few know that when Lord Balfour issued what's known as the Balfour Declaration, which was a letter from him as Foreign Secretary to Lord Rothschild, who uh, at the time was campaigning on behalf of the right of of the Zionist movement for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. And the Balfour Declaration says that the British government would look with favor upon the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine with this famous caveat that it not compromise the rights of the non-Jews. There was no mention of Palestinians or locals or others Uh, It was non-Jews in the process. But this same Lord Balfour was in the process of driving through the House of Commons a piece of legislation which would limit the amount of Jewish migration from continental Europe to Britain. It was the bright idea, let them live somewhere else, we've got enough here. That's the nasty dirty secret behind so much of the support of some of the British establishment for this formula for Palestine. And the British could not have done this if they were not in imperial mode. They did not think it mattered to move peoples around. They thought that was what you did as an imperial power. Their plan during the First World War was to populate what was then Mesopotamia and now Iraq from people who were part of the uh, British Empire in India, from the subcontinent. They would move people around. The British Empire was maintained thanks to the Indian Army. So... We're dealing in retrospect with uh, decisions made by governments who are in a wholly different mind frame from the one that is considered correct and appropriate today. At the very least, it would be nice if there was a formal recognition of that. We've had this on slavery. Before I open to the floor, which we will, uh, did you want to add anything, Peter? Well, I was, uh, I was very interested by Rosemary's most recent remark because I did about seven years of research for The Promise and we found some documents that were quite telling. But they weren't to do with Britain, they were to do with America. And one of the things that the contemporary British documents talk about is how resentful a lot of the British diplomats were about how pro the Jewish position the Americans were. And this was always assumed, at least according to my reading, uh, to be simply because of the, you know, the large number of Jewish people who were in, particularly in New York at the time. But actually the documents that I read suggested that that was not the complete story. And that a lot of the reasons why America was very keen to to strong-arm Britain, essentially, into accepting uh, what will essentially be a a Jewish-controlled state in in what had been Palestine, 
was very similar to the reasons that Rosemary was just laying out. They didn't really want any more Jews in New York, please. And, and I, would, I would just add to that, in terms of understanding why the Americans, who are, who are the major obstacle, let, let's not beat about the bush, the major obstacle to the resolution of this issue. There's a little, I don't know how many of you have seen it, you're much younger than me, so you may look at Facebook, but there's a little, little clip going around on Facebook which struck me very strongly a, a, a few months ago. There's a demonstration, it's just a little YouTube video, and there's a demonstration taking place on the streets of some American city, and it's quite a large one, and it's quite a right-wing demonstration, and it's an anti-immigration demonstration. And there's just this very shaky camera, somebody's iPhone probably, and there's this guy, and he's a, he's a Native American. You can see it from his face. And he's just shouting. He's shouting, you're the immigrants. <laughs> you're the immigrants. And he doesn't say much else, really. He says it, you know. He has a few expletives in there. He's very angry. But essentially, and the, the demonstration melts away. And it helps me understand, again, setting aside geopolitical issues, which are hugely important, obviously, why America finds it so difficult to take a stand against the illegality and the disgusting behavior of the state of Israel. Because that's how they came into existence, guys. <laughs> I feel a sort of eerie sense of guilt because in something which uh, Rosemary said about the extent of anti-Semitism in the British establishment, uh, when I grew up in the 50s, I, I grew up in the British establishment. That's why I speak the way I do. Um, and, and I have to say it was the norm to speak uh, ill, uh, to, to phrase things in a way that made it quite clear what people thought. It perhaps wasn't aggressive, but it was absolutely there. And it, it took a very long time in my own development before I understood the circumstances under which I had actually grown up. Uh, and, and honestly, if you scratch the surface, um, it's there. It, it was there in, in the 50s. And I don't think it's still there now, but then I've already been accused of not looking adequately at my inbox. But I don't think now, but I can see now how it would have fed into uh, a desire to see a community move and establish itself somewhere else. It, it was a, it's a frightening thing to look back on. Uh, because, of course, uh, it probably was part of what uh, delayed the bombing of the railway lines. Almost certainly. There, there was not... I mean, the, they knew that the Jews were being... Massive. Oh, I see. Uh, oh, and, and God, do you? What? Do you think that? I, th I, I, I think it, it, there may not have been the enthusiasm to find out mm. what was actually happening as fast as we could have done. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a dark period that we've still not fully explored. Anyway, there's enough of that. What we have, <laughs> what we have established is that we came here to talk about now and we have talked about history. 
and history is clearly the absolutely... It's been brilliantly laid out by our four panellists. So who wants to bring us to the now? Look at this forest of male hands. I do see a woman. Now. I'm going to ask you. Yeah, let's go for the second one in with the stripes. The, the, the woman, I say. Yeah. Go for it. Um, if you could say who you are, I mean. Uh, my name is Emily Riley. I'm an LSE alumni. Um, Karma mentioned that the Palestinian cause is an issue that unites Arabs. Yet yeah, most of the Arab states that host Palestinian refugees don't treat them very well and they use the right of return as an excuse to deny Palestinians rights on their lands. Is that a legitimate excuse? Is Palestinians living um, as equal human beings in their host nations incompatible with maintaining the right to return? Um, What I'm going to do is store up for people people to come back and I'll take, yeah, because you nearly got the microphone, why don't you get it this time? (laughs) Um, yes, I might be helpful to the panel, I don't know, but going into history, perhaps you could go back a little further because I understand that there's academic works by David Ben-Gurion and by uh, Yitzhak Ben-Svi, a president of the State of Israel, investigating the people of the land as they found it and finding that in the investigation the Palestinians were in fact originally Jews. And I understand as well that a lot of Palestinian families to this day have got vestigial Jewish customs and vestigial Jewish artifacts in their homes. And I wonder if, and I understand also, that many Palestinians are throwing their lot in with the Jewish state at the moment. Um, the, uh, the councillor of the Israeli embassy up the road is a Palestinian um, Galilee um, Bedou, a Bedouin. So I wondered if there's any mileage in this as historians and academics, this idea going back in history a little bit more to find that the Palestinians, who they really once were, and uh, even if they stay as Muslims today, that they're really brothers of the Jews. Thank you. I'm reminded of a, a, a DNA exercise Channel 4 carried out, and they found I was 2% African. So, uh, uh, <laughs> so I've no doubt, I've no doubt that we could, we could prove your point. In typical Jewish thing, funny, you don't look it. <laughs> Right, uh, let's take somebody right up the back somewhere. Yes, the one in the middle with the glasses. Right, right there, keep that hand up with the dark sleeve. Yeah. Hi there, I'm Genevieve. Um, this is a kind of anecdote that leads to a question. I have an eight-year-old piano student who's uh, French. Her whole family is French. And um, I saw a Hebrew textbook on her shelf, and I said, oh, are, you, are you learning Hebrew? And she said, yes, I am. I'm, uh, I'm Jewish. I'm kind of learning it. I'm Jewish, but I don't know whether I'm from Israel or not. Um, And this kind of struck me as at the center of a lot of the problem with trying to talk to Jewish people about Israel, that it's a kind of mythical place, even if they know all the facts. It's got this romantic idea around it. And I I just wanted to address that with the panel. Thank you very much. I'll take one more question before we... We'll take another round in a moment. Uh, Let's go for you out on the far right. Not that I'm suggesting that's where you are. (laughs) Um, I 
Um, I'm very pleased to be back at the LSC um, because I think that this specific forum has been one that has hosted many debates on the question of Palestine. Um, and my question um, is perhaps one that you will have anticipated, and so I'm happy to oblige you with its eventual form in which it reaches you today, and that is the question of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which I think no discussion of where we go in Palestine would be complete, even if only to discuss it in the negative. It's a, it's a central question. Um, and I would say that um, I was here in 2010 whenever Daniel Ayalon came to try and speak at the LSE, and we, the organised um, students of the Palestine Society, saw fit to attempt to effect a boycott that our governments and indeed our institution did not have the courage to effect. Um, I was also here later that year whenever Baroness... Uh, Catherine Ashton came upon assuming her role as the EU um, High Commissioner for Foreign Affairs to talk about the then imminent process by which Israel was going to be accorded the kind of preferential trade agreements that it is, it is about to um, uh, realise and actualise. Um, and so I come here for the third time to try and further the discourse on boycott, divestment and sanctions. I think that it's, it's, inc it's incredibly telling that we come here um, hot on the, on the news in the Financial Times, no less, that um, certain crucial contracts with Group 4 security have been pulled out of Israel. Now, regardless of what you think of boycott divestment sanctions, it is very clear to me that it is a fixture on the political map. It is a fixture that is very important to Palestinians themselves. And so I think it's important that we write that in to this discussion um, in a way that was not necessarily addressed by the panel and that I invite them to do now. Thank you very much. Um, so... Uh, we, we, we have a wide and disparate spread of, of issues to pick up briefly from the panel before we come back for another round. So don't worry, your arms needn't stay up the whole time. Uh, the uh, question of Palestinians and the treatment by Arab states that host them, you didn't mention that in many of those Arab states the Palestinians actually run them, basically. I mean, if you go to a place like Qatar, for example, uh, a lot of the key jobs are done by Palestinians. Kuwait, uh, Kuwait used to used to be run by Palestinians, and, and when they were expelled, and now look at it, they expelled the whole lot. And that was when Saddam Hussein came. But it's a very interesting issue. So Palestinians <laughs> and the treatment by Arab states that that give them homes, but not very adequate ones. Mileage of one people uh, that they're all the same anyway. Um, French, Hebrew, piano playing, romance, uh, and boycotts. So. Illa. Right. But don't, let's go on forever. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, there are so many more. No, no, no. And I won't answer all of them. I would leave some of them. I, I'll pick the ones I, I constructed amnesia. Um, I will start with the mileage. I think that it doesn't really matter who you are, but how you behave. Uh, that reminds me about the, uh, the question about whether the Palestinians are or not the successor of the Jews who used to live in Palestine, as if this is any importance. It is also true about the Jewish, what you used to call in, in the history of Israel and Palestine, the veteran Jewish community, those Jews who were there before the early Zionists arrived. And we know historically that at first they didn't like the idea of Zionism, and then they decided to accept Zionism. What is important that in redefining their identity, the question, what they did is not whether they were right or wrong in redefining themselves. What they did, they decided to identify with the invader, with the colonizer, with the settler. This is what matters. It's settler versus native, not Arabs versus Jews. 
Some of the Jews that Israel brought in 1950 because it could not bring all the European Jews were Arabs. They were Arabs. And these Arabs were brought to Israel and asked to forget their Arab identity if they wanted to be part of the master's society. So they had to de-Arabize themselves. They had to identify with the colonizer, with the occupier, with the invader. And that's what matters. Not whether uh, you have 5 or 10% Jewish blood in you or you don't. Again, this obsession with counting the, the, the number of Jewish drops you have in your, in your DNA, please, guys, remember who were the ones who were even more obsessed than you with this. Really, remember that. Remember that. Remember that. You begin, you begin to look like your worst enemies. You begin to look like your worst enemies. That's horrible. That's, hor that's horrible for people who decide to shout shame in the name of such an ideology. Now, the... The second... The, the, that's the... the, the um, uh, the, the second point that uh, was made about the, the BDS, uh, of course, we didn't mention everything, and I agree with you. I think the, the voice of support for Palestine through the call for boycott, divestment, and sanction is one of the most important uh, action that people from abroad can take and, and act upon uh, in their attempt to help to change the dismal and horrible reality on the ground in Israel and Palestine. Uh, but let's not forget that the BDS is a tactic. It's not a vision. And it's very important for people like Karma and myself to talk about how Jews and Palestinians would live there. It's important for Karma and, and myself to talk about the agency of the Palestinians, the questions of representation on the Palestinians. It's a complex issue. And we should always be sure that we know when we're talking about the vision, when we talk about the tactics, and we talk about a certain order of things in order that we are not fragmenting a struggle for a people whose whole life was determined by a policy of fragmentation by the, by the movement that came and colonized them and still tries to dispossess them. Well, in the interests of brevity, I'll just focus on the, the, the issue of boycott. Um, my earliest sort of exposure to politics in this country was, uh, and people of a certain age will rem remember this, was the 24-hour sort of picket outside the South African embassy. And I remember as a, as a, as a fifth former at school, standing outside at 3 a.m. in the morning, wondering what the guy was doing there. <laughs> Bloody cold. I was the only one there with my little placard. And, uh, <laughs> and my own personal little boycott by not buying South African apples, which I have to tell you was a real sacrifice cause <laughs> for me personally. And then I went to live in Israel. I lived in Israel for just over a year to make the promise. I actually lived there in an apartment. And it felt like an apartheid state to me. I'm sorry, I, you know, I can just call it as I fe felt like. 
So there are parallels, at least on the ground, as far as I can see, and that's how the Palestinians who live in Israel feel, because they told me. And the other thing I think about the boycott is it creates so much anger in Israelis. They really hate the idea, particularly the academic boycott, which suggests to me that it probably would be quite effective. So I think, yes, we should do it. To answer your question about civil and political rights, of course, of course the Palestinians should have civil and political rights. Yeah? And of course the Arab regimes that are preventing them are uh, part of the problem, part of the problem yeah, that we face as Palestinians. And I would say that you know, there's even an, uh, an extreme pol- argument that I've heard from some people saying, well, you know, this kind of right of return, that they have to return so therefore, it's better that they don't have rights. Every Palestinian that I know, the more rights that they have, the freer they are to struggle for the collective freedoms of their people. And talking about people, it's important in this framing because what has happened to us has happened to us as a people. It's as a people we are being colonized and dispossessed. So it's in that respect that it's important to understand what's happening to a people and not just a group or a segment or, you know, that, because part of the project is to deny us that reality that we came from that place and we belong to that place as a people. Yeah? And that we can be all kinds of things. We want to be free to be all kinds of things. We don't want to be one rigid identity, but that only comes with our freedom. Yeah, that we have to and, and when I came to this country in eighty five, there was you know an, a, a strong national liberation movement that I was part of. And we worked very closely with the ANC, with SWAPO. I mean I remember that when I was in Beirut and other places because it was a common struggle for freedom for our people. There was a collective struggle that was identical in terms of we saw it. We didn't see ourselves as nationalist we saw ourselves as fighting for justice, fighting for freedom. It's very basic. And we were working at that time on boycott and divestments and sanctions from the 80s. So it's not a new tactic. It's an essential tactic. So I don't, you know, you were saying, well, no matter what you think about, whether you're with it or not, I think it's important what you think about it. It's important to understand boycott, divestment, and sanctions besides the kind of outrage response the importance of it as a tactic is what it gives it, what it gives people outside who are not Palestinian, what it gives them as a mechanism to show their solidarity. When, the, when we had, and we will have again, we will have another revolution and we will have a, a liberation movement because the previous generation could not succeed to liberate us. Yeah, and there's a, a young people. Where Palestinians are young people. You know, we have an old leadership. We're very exhausted. But our people, the majority of them are young or under 20. And we have not given up on our cause and we have not given up on our claims. We have not said that's it, we give up, we quit. We have not quit on any sides. So there will be a new national liberation movement. And the core part of that liberation movement is to have a universalist cause that is open, that is principled, and that is based on uh, a struggle against injustice. And what boycott, divestment, and sanctions gives is a tool. 
and a mechanism for those who previously could support a people in their struggle through a framework of a representative movement. So it was very easy when in the 80s with the ANC and the PL, we used to be able to work with solidarity in all of those ways and talk about the tactics and strategies, etc. Given the parlous state of our national affairs at the moment and our uh, fragmentation in the political sense, Boycott and divestment and sanction gives a framework for understanding first what the issue is about, that you are, what the, what, the, what the issue that upsets you, what is, upsets you, there's these principles that define it very clearly about the occupation, about the discrimination in historic Palestine, and about the expulsion, forced military expulsion, and it's still being maintained by force, and people don't, you see the occupation and you see the military, but what people don't often see is that the military is imposing people cannot return to their land. And that's a violent injustice that's still being perpetuated every day. So it gives those principles and an understanding of people that start to work and think, how can we show solidarity and support with these people's struggle for what we hold as a given in our country and amongst ourselves? And that goes back to a tradition which is very strong in this country, which is a tradition of freedom and liberty, which has been struggled for. You know, the freedoms we have today are not won by the people of today. They were won by previous generations, the freedoms that we hold. But it was an understanding that we are not free until others are also free, and that somehow it affects our own freedom. So I think that, uh, although I agree, I agree with Ilan, and we've talked about this a lot, about you know, separating it. It's not a movement. Boycott effect. It's a sanction, but it gives a way of those of us outside of, uh, uh, outside of Palestine or that aren't Palestinian to, to show we are one and we are with you. And there's nothing as important for people who are struggling for their under very harsh conditions, as you know. There's nothing as important as knowing that you're there. So thank you. Rosemary. And I thank Karma for... Uh, elaborating a bit more what she meant by a people because uh, th there is nothing that gets me more incensed than uh, the systematic attempt to erase uh, aspects of history which are positively inconvenient. And um, I am full of support for the Palestinians in resisting the rewriting of history as though um, their street names were not always Arab as far back as we can see and that the um, the whole aspects of their story so uh, where I f what I feel about the boycott is that it has to be one of many efforts and I think actually if it's a civil society movement uh, that is possibly the correct identity for it, um, that it is something that people choose to do. What I uh, am very wary of is when states get involved in boycotts, because that is what we've got with the Gaza Strip. And it is collective punishment. And uh, I also don't think that sanctions are a very good policy tool. Uh, and the example I would use is Iran. Mm. Uh, and that it is usually a kind of lazy way when states do it of trying to make a point without actually changing reality. So 
um, it's, it's better as demonstrative of the awareness of people, as has been said, that something's going on that is intolerable and that they don't think it's a good thing. But uh, when it comes to the EU, as a, they really astonishingly missed a trick because under the European Neighbourhood Policy, uh, the plan was to sign an action plan with all the partner states around the Mediterranean and this was an opportunity to build some conditionality in. That, you know, if you, if you harmonize with us, if you grow closer to us, we, we need to see that the standards that we like to believe in Europe we stand for, which is no arbitrary arrest, no detention without trial, uh, no uh, treatment that uh, we can define as torture, uh, that um, deprivation of civil rights, political rights, and so on, uh, is not something that we tolerate inside Europe. So uh, we need to see change on these issues. And so whatever efforts are made, it would be good if the different strands of the campaign could identify the objective. What is enough? What is the change that's being sought? Is it human rights? Is it the right of return? Is it a two-state solution? Is it a resumption of talks? Uh, there's, there's a whole slew of things out there. And I think better to say, uh, in today's society the deprivation of the human rights of any group of people is intolerable. Uh, we, are, we, are, um, we have one minute past our deadline of half past seven. I'm going to beg four more minutes so I can take a very quick few questions. I promised shame that I'd bring him in, so give him the mic, <laughs> but not forever, shame. <laughs> No, no, the guy behind you was shame, not you. There was a guy behind you. Uh, thanks, John. Um, uh, Mr. Kosminski, you said that um, nothing prepared you for the level of vitriol that was going to drop on you from the Zionist lobby. Um, it was appalling, that level of vitriol. Um, what the this lobby failed to remember was that Channel 4 was the channel that carried Ahmadinejad uh, giving the Christmas message and what the lobby failed to realise of course was that your work, the promise was not a work of fact it was a work of fiction um, the promise gave a misleading impression of the history of Israel it suggested that um, uh, Israel was only formed because of the Holocaust which is wrong the first Zionist Congress was in 1897 uh, it said that the Israelis began to um, uh, behave like their tormentors, which is also wrong. A look at the number of human rights uh, organizations. It's, no, it depicted uh, Israeli Jews as living in California-style okay. houses, okay. which well, is also wrong. Fair enough. Point, point made. Uh, you, only interviewed, you only interviewed combatants for peace. You only interviewed uh, okay. uh, breaking for silence. Okay. Uh, does the panel accept that the promise was a work... I will if you'll shut up. I will if you'll shut up. Does the panel, Mr. Snow, does the panel accept that the promise was a work of pure fiction and Thank therefore the lobby was obviously wrong to condemn it because they thought it was fact? Thank you very much. Uh, I, I think uh, I'll let Peter speak for himself, but I mean, he has talked about the research he did and the individual who actually contacted him in the first place. You can tell how, what the genesis it was, um, but if you are unable to determine what it was, well, 
he can speak for himself. But let, let's just take a, a, one more question here. Yes. Can I, can I, uh, Jonathan, John? You say that uh, you say that there's no anti-Semitism today. Do you not realise? Say that at all? Or, or it's not as bad as, it, or it's not as bad as it was. Do you realise you are, and this panel and this event is part of the propagation. When you yourself, John Snow, talk about the Jewish lobby, when the promise uh, portrays rich Jews in, in Israel they, they, and downtrodden Arabs, when the whole event is talking about the destruction of the Jewish state, about this, this uh, mythical right of return, and 194, karma, you should be ashamed of yourself, you should reread 194. And what I'd like to ask is, Israel is a, Israel is a democracy. Israel's are not... Is, Israel, Israel is not going to vote. Israel is not going. Israel is not going to vote itself out of existence. So, if you want the right of return, how many Israelis and how many Palestinians should die in a war for you to get exactly what you want while you sit in Oxford and in Exeter? lecturing about it. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much. Uh, well, th- th- thank, thank you very much for your contributions. I'm going to take one, one more question here and then I think we have to wrap it. But thank you very much. I'm grateful to you for your measured questioning. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you've put your questions very nicely and I'm grateful. Thank you. John, I am proud to be here. I'm Antoine Raful from Nazareth. I watch Channel 4 News all the time. I want... I... I want to thank the Middle East Center for putting such a fantastic panel on for the first time. That is a very solid panel. Now, um, there, is, there is definitely a rot and fatigue in the discussion about the existing Palestine-Israeli situation. Thank you, Ilan, for the written word. Thank you, uh, Karma, for the spoken word. And thank you, Peter, for the visual world. Now, your film is so magnificent. I've watched it like five times so far. (laughs) Because, wait, because for the first time, and somebody may correct me, for the first time, it shows a fact, not a fiction, and that is the Deir Yassin massacre. That is the first time a film shows it. Now, my question, the biggest sector of society today is the academic population around the world. Not the politicians, the academic uh, population. These are the people who will pass the information on and it will cause its humani for action later on. Now, my question to Peter is, are you planning another film? My question to John, are you going to show the five broken cameras on Channel 4? (laughs) You know, 
all good things have to come to an end. And unfortunately, we must leave those rhetorical questions in the air. Uh, but I, but I, I would like to thank, on your behalf, the panel. I would like to, th above all, thank um, the Kincaids, both of them, the consultants who brought us here in the first place, uh, very, very warmly. And, and I would like to thank you all, and I mean all, for a very stimulating evening, and I look forward to round two. Thank you very much. Thank you, John.